0: The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. The Lord of Heavenly Forces proclaims Make just and faithful decisions. Show kindness and compassion to each other. Don't oppress the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the poor. Don't plan evil against each other. But they refuse to pay attention. They turned a cold shoulder and stopped listening. They steeled their hearts against hearing the instruction and the words that the Lord of Heavenly Forces sent by God's Spirit through the earlier prophets. As a result, the Lord of Heavenly Forces became enraged. So just as God called and they didn't listen, when they called, I didn't listen, says the Lord of Heavenly Forces. I scattered them throughout the nations whom they didn't know. The land was devastated behind them, with no one leaving or returning They turned a delightful land into a wasteland. This is the word in black and red. And welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I'm your host, Micah Belong, the wise old Lama MB, joined today by the wonderful Don, Soul, and Snorkel. Thank you all for joining us again. We're going to dive straight into Genesis 2.25 through 3.24. The two of them were naked, the man and his wife, but they weren't embarrassed. The snake was the most intelligent of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. The snake said to the woman, Did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat the fruit of the garden's trees, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, Don't eat from it, and don't touch it, or you will die. The snake said to the woman, You won't die. God knows that on the day you eat from it, you will see clearly, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful with delicious food, and the tree would provide wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then they both saw clearly and knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. During that day's cool evening breeze, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God in the middle of the garden's trees. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? The man replied, I heard your sound in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the snake tricked me and I ate. The Lord God said to the snake, because you did this, You are the one cursed out of all the farm animals, out of all the wild animals. On your belly you will crawl, and dust you will eat every day of your life. I will put contempt between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. They will strike your head, but you will strike at their heels. To the woman he said, I will make your pregnancy very painful. In pain you will bear children. You will desire your husband, but he will rule over you. To the man he said, "'Because you listened to your wife's voice and you ate from the tree that I commanded, don't eat from it. Cursed is the fertile land because of you. In pain you will eat from it every day of your life. Weeds and thistles will grow for you, even as you eat the field's plants. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, until you return to the fertile land, since from it you were taken. You are soil, to the soil you will return.'" The man named his wife Eve, because she is the mother of everyone who lives, The Lord God made the man and his wife leather clothes and dressed them. The Lord God said, The human being has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, so he doesn't stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. The Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to farm the fertile land from which he was taken. He drove out the human. To the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed winged creatures wielding flaming swords to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, Sol, you had a really interesting example of how this story, the, the possible ways that God is explaining what the tree is in this story.
1: Yeah. So, um, we saw like in the in the previous section where God just says like, hey, don't eat of this fruit, for you will surely die. Right. And like we read that as a commandment. And th- there's a decent chance that the people who were writing it were writing it as a commandment. But y- you don't have to read it as a commandment, right? You don't have to read it as like this edict handed down from on high. And so I started thinking about it as like, okay, imagine you're over at a friend's house, right? And they're like, hey, don't eat the pizza that's in the fridge. You're welcome to anything. Don't eat the pizza that's in the fridge though, because it's like two weeks old and it will fuck you up, right? And so now we're at this point where, okay, but the pizza looked really good though, and so you ate it. And from that point forward, we are not acting like we're besties staying over at a friend's house, right? We eat the pizza and we're like, oh shit, no pun intended. Um, and and then we go hide, right? And so your friend comes home, and they're like, hey, where the fuck are you? And you're like, yeah, sorry, I was afraid of you because I ate the pizza, right? Like, that's wild.
0: And I suddenly realized that my outfit wasn't put together well. You know, like... (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I'm a mess, and I haven't done my makeup, and my hair... Like it's it's just not real. And they're like, dude, get out. Like, if you're gonna (laughs) be like that.
0: This story is traditionally called the fall. And it's described as the fall because there's this idea that the somehow humanity gained a wisdom that helped them to leave this perfect state of being. Now, this perfect state is a state that in theology is called original justice. And original justice is the idea that everything is how it's supposed to be, and now we are in a state of injustice. This state of injustice is one where things are not the way that they ought to be. And we see that the first injustice seems to be that, that because of humanity's shame at what they've done, right? nakedness is nothing wrong God doesn't seem to say, oh, you're naked, therefore you're evil. God instead provides clothing for them because they were ashamed. But how does God do that? God makes it out of leather clothes. Which means that the first injustice is because Adam and Eve choose to partake in a fruit that they aren't supposed to, they cause the death and suffering of something else. And that begins the cycle that in their children results in the murder of one's own sibling, right? Um, And so we fall out of this system of justice.
2: This is one that has always bothered me a a little bit. Uh, Not just because, you know, Uh, Evangelicals and right wingers take this one in all sorts of weird directions. But this is one that's been an odd interpretation that's been baked into Christian theology from the beginning that I haven't totally gotten. The idea of there being a state of original justice and a state of kind of perpetual sin is predicated on the fact that the creative act stopped in Genesis 2 and then we screwed it up and things that keep rolling forward, which, you know, makes sense according to Christian theology as it's been taught through the ages. But that particular piece requires us to develop a blind spot for certain key features about God, namely the fact that God sees creation temporally consistent from start to finish. So God created the whole thing, not just space and then walked with us in time. God created the whole thing, time included, in one fell swoop. So we're still in the middle of the creative act. So the question here. For me, it was never, how did we screw it up? But what the hell was God meaning with all of this stuff? Because the Creative Act is now continuing through this state from justice to injustice. And so now we stumble into the assumption, what did God mean by creating a situation in which we would be separate from God's initial design? And the answer is, of course... God designed it to be unpredictable and to be weird and to be different. And so the question I end on then is what are we meant as a species to learn from having separated ourselves from God and then having spent the next several thousand years fighting to get reconciled to that?
1: Something I think a lot about with this is actually like, if you're talking about sexual ethics, right, you get the idea of like, okay, well, if I'm not like after you're no longer a virgin. Um, There's not, like, a non-shameful word for that in the English language, funnily enough. If we don't believe you're, like, in sin necessarily, like, you're not ruined, but you're not, like, innocent doesn't encompass that either, right? And so what are we that's, like, beyond innocence, but not so, like, shame-filled,
0: I absolutely agree that there is a state, there has to be a state of existence that is beyond innocence, but is not corrupted, right? For some reason in in our culture, we see things only in this black and white, this binary that's set up to be good and evil, right? Here, the Bible does not say, and God does not say, you are evil humanity. Instead, God says, you have found something out that you weren't supposed to know, right? You have discovered something that has shattered the innocence that I created you in, And now you're not able to survive in this place anymore um, because of that. You have gained a knowledge that makes this place no longer fitting for you. And so this this allegory is a great one of childhood, right? Where at some point you discover Santa Claus is not real, right? You discover that there were convenient lies that your parents told you. I'm sorry, our editor just popped up and was shocked that Santa isn't real. So I'm sorry that I broke that news to you, my friend. You know, you lose this innocence that leads to maturity and a change in your life that is fundamentally different from the way things used to be, but does that have to carry with it shame.
2: I, I want to consider the possibility that moving into this state was by design and not something we did. Like, we always talk about it in terms like, this surprised God and oh my, oh my me, we were able to do a thing that he didn't expect. He, of course, being a stand-in for evangelical interpretation. Anyway, what if this was by design? What if God had always intended for humanity to evolve by its own choices? Because we had free will from the beginning, even before the fall. So what if God had designed humanity to be presented with a series of choices throughout the time in the Garden until we eventually stumbled over one that set us on a path? And this was
0: the path we chose. And this relates a lot to what Snorkel uh, has been talking about through a series of these episodes, is the transition from a hunter-gatherer society that they seem to have in Eden to this new kind of society an agricultural society that we have after humanity is banished from from Eden. Uh, Snorkel, would you mind telling us more about that?
3: Sure. So um, the obvious like literary and allegorical comparison I think is pretty easy to see. Human beings go from basically being innocent and at one with nature, having all their needs provided within easy reach without having to do much labor in return for it, to being cast out of this garden and being told they will now have to cultivate the soil and grow their own food and the consequences that come with it being death and a diminished quality of life. And that's something that is actually... Uh, Well documented in archaeology is that you have the bones of hunter-gatherer communities and they appear to be healthier than the bones of people from agrarian communities. Um, Their teeth are better and stronger. They don't have cavities the way uh, people in agrarian societies tend to. They don't suffer from the effects of hard labor. There's a marked uh, difference in the um, incidence of disease between hunter-gatherers and agriculturalists. And a lot of that, a lot of the viruses and diseases that have been so devastating to humans come from exploiting animals and domesticating them, living in close, unsanitary conditions with them. And then you have things like arthritis and vitamin deficiencies and diseases that come from living in close quarters with other humans. And it just feels like so many of society's ills happen as a direct consequence of being sentenced to an existence of agriculture.
0: Absolutely, and you know we see these um, some of the descriptions of the colonizers who come in and and just devastate the uh, people who were living in the Americas is they often described it as Eden, as this place where it was perfect, and then white people showed up and ruined everything because we brought with us ways of living in the culture that were not conducive to actually building the society that was in that was in community with nature in the way that people who were living native in the United States for hundreds of thousands of years before we did were living. Now, I think that that's relating back to this theme that we see throughout the, throughout the Bible is the story of people being in a place and that place being home for them, and then something getting messed up oppression occurring, not taking care of the poor, not taking care of the outsider. And then they get kicked out and they're stuck wandering. And suddenly they are the oppressed people because they did not take care of the oppressed in their own society. And so you see this constantly happening, that the end of the state of Israel and the end of the state of Judah, both are related to not caring for the poor. And here we see Adam and Eve selfishly take part in this fruit. It results in the death and oppression of another creature. And suddenly we are now in this whole new system where they have to wander and be the oppressed people because of their decisions.
1: If you haven't, I highly recommend. It's uh, David Graeber and David Ringro's uh, book, The Dawn of Everything. It is exactly about um, the conversation on society and hunter gatherers and agrarian societies and what's actually really interesting is part of what don was talking about of like what if the core of it is choice and what they end up talking about is like from a uh, archaeological standpoint the idea that humanity like that agriculture was this Uh, poison apple if you will uh, of like we gained this knowledge and then we couldn't go back is just untrue like we can't find that in the archaeological record of where like it, it is true that some portions of humanity did do agriculture and did hunter and gathering but like it wasn't like this diffusion of knowledge where it's like as soon as you know how to plant seeds in the ground like suddenly you have kings like that's just not the case you see literally thousands of years of cities of hunter gatherers that don't have anything we would recognize as a hierarchy at least in the archaeological record you have things um and again i'm not like citing the exact things that they talk about because that's literally the whole book and it's like the audiobook is 24 hours long it's a really long book you get like cities that did do agriculture but don't have this hierarchy and all of this like uh essentially evolutionary kind of model ends up getting us somewhere where like we Ignore that people have choices, and it's especially egregious whenever you get to um, white people getting to the Americas and assuming that these are basically Paleolithic humans, right? Like, these are people who are just in a state of nature and have never, like, thought about how they would like their society to function, and and that's just not true. Like, some places in the Americas had agriculture, some places didn't. And they clearly knew about each other and actively chose how they were going to live. Um, and, and I think from, like, a – from a political standpoint, that has some really good implications because, like, we can decide how we live and it's not – it's not like, you know – I like having Cheetos, so we have to have modern-day capitalism. Like, <laughs> it, It's not that one-to-one.
0: Oreos are not a good enough reason to continue capitalism. Um, that, that is my greatest uh, temptation. First off, if you can't have Cheetos without capitalism, you shouldn't have Cheetos, but that's
2: beside the point. Look, um, the idea of choice that, that you have there I think <sighs> is important Not just in terms of kind of broader political points we mean to make here, but also in terms of the Bible itself. Because there's a narrative piece that happens throughout not just this story, but throughout the motion into the rest of Adam and even their descendants that we often kind of ignore. And that point is um, at the very end of chapter three, God goes on a bit of a rant about how you're going to basically agriculture forever. Like agriculture is now your thing. There's going to be thorns. There's going to be thistles. You're going to eat the plants of the field. That's going to be your thing. And then for the next, I don't know, my own podcast is, I think, what, like almost 30 chapters in here. And I ain't stopped yet. Um, Humanity basically just throws up the double middles to the almighty and and goes full nomad. Like, fuck this agriculture shit. We're going to wander for a bit. And there is an actual element of choice that is occurring here that we tend to kind of ignore because there's a decisive motion to be like, no, we're going to go places. We're going to do our own thing. And there's an independence that's inherent in that that we tend to kind of skip over a little bit.
0: Well, and I wonder if that's related to the fact that in the the, the story of Noah, right? That um, in the story of Noah, Noah's name is literally the one who will free us from uh, from our sufferings, right? And the sufferings being the curse of the infertility of the ground. Um, in, in an episode that you, dear listener, will get to listen to soon, uh, we talk about the Nephilim and the fact that Noah is seen as this, um, as this ordinary person who nonetheless is going to bring about the salvation of all people by lifting the curse, right? Um, The curse that's placed here. And I think that the curse and choice is a good segue into talking about patriarchy and the fact that if we take this story seriously, patriarchy is the result of sin and nothing else. And choosing to exist within the patriarchy is choosing to exist within the fallen world rather than the original justice that God calls us to where the first male human and the first female human are equal and instead to live into a society where they're not.
3: I grew up in a very conservative evangelical family and church and it was an environment that really pushed. I know everyone has has heard about this. Anyone who's familiar with the evangelical conservative Christian movement in the United States, especially, they love to push the Bible verses about how women are supposed to be submissive to men, how you're supposed to submit to your husband, and um, just kind of relegated to the role of, you know, a bang maid. Essentially, they act like that's God's original design, and that that's somehow a good thing and the way it was supposed to be and there's a a line of thought called complementarianism which is essentially separate but equal but about gender where men and women are created equal but they have different roles and it sounds super you know benign at first but it really embraces the patriarchal misogynist mindset that men are created to be leaders and strong and women are created to be meek submissive servants just accessories really to men and it doesn't matter how benevolent they try to be about it sexism is still sexism and it always just baffles me that they act like that's god's original design for men and women for males and females or husbands and wives and whatever kind of dichotomy you want to break it down into because when God creates, uh, like you said, Micah, when God creates the first man and the first woman, they are equals. God doesn't say anything about a hierarchy. He didn't say anything about who is supposed to rule over whom. That comes literally and only as a part of the curse. It's not even mentioned. Their roles and how they are to relate to each other doesn't even come into play until curse. So anyone who tries to say that, oh, God designed men and women to have these different roles. No, he didn't. You're, you're choosing, like you said, to live in a fallen state of being. You're choosing to cling to a curse that was a punishment and a consequence for sin versus God's original design, which was truly equality.
2: I really need to jump on that because oh my God the Hebrew um, like because I've got in front of me I've got uh, Robert Alter's translation which is way way more accurate than anything I've seen and definitely prettier you know you'd swear the man was paying me but he's not I promise I'm just gonna shill for that every time I get it because it's that awesome uh, verse 25 that we had there earlier um, in just about every English translation out there refers to them as the man and his wife using a basically a hard-coded possessive, and the structural institutional language of marriage. Just about every version of that, except for this one, which is better reflective of the Hebrew, uh, where it says, and the two of them were naked, the human and his woman. Because the terms that are used there are Isha and isha, or uh, I think it's adama and isha. Either way, man, terms for man and terms for woman. There is no structural or hierarchical relationship expressed. And the possessive is simply a connector, not an expression of ownership. So Hebrew itself is even in the beginning stressing here, there is an equality of relationship that is present here. And I really, really, fucking really cannot help but stress the fact that English is absolute garbage. When it comes to expressing this equality, because we always want someone to be on top in English, somebody's—we are the capitalistic language. Like we've always got to be buying and selling. Like we are used car salesmen in the world of languages here, and it drives me up the friggin' wall.
3: <laughs> English is really just like five or six other languages in a trench coat pretending to be a language. So true. <laughs> Even uh, when you you talk about the the. Possession there. The only time you do see uh, Adam taking more of like an ownership role of Eve is after the curse when it talks about how he named her. And that can be interpreted as the the curse taking place.
0: Well, and he names her like he named what? The The animals. animals. So the patriarchy is immediately lowering women's status. God created them equal. Adam, after he gets kicked out of the garden lowers Eve's status to that of animal, and we see the same sexism and and misogyny and patriarchy that continues to afflict us to this day, that, if you are a Christian, is completely anathema to what we believe we are in Christ, where there is no male or female, just us beautiful, non-binary bitches.
1: What really gets me is that in the same breath, they will say, like, they will absolutely ignore Um, And by they, I mean evangelical Christians primarily will absolutely ignore the part about how, like, patriarchy is this curse. It is this not good thing in Genesis. And then they will also, in that exact same breath, insist that the creation of the world had to have been seven 24-hour time periods in the way that you and I would understand it that took place exactly 6,000 years ago and it's like they are only literalists whenever it is convenient for them and like they only care about it when it either just makes them sound ridiculous because that's cool and good or whenever it advocates a conservative political position.
3: It can be understood not necessarily like God is cursing them and God is designing patriarchy as a punishment, more as, and this is for all the curses, really just announcing that this is the consequence that is going to happen living in a fallen state. What's going to naturally occur is now patriarchy is going to be a thing. Because it's even before God actually says the curse, you can already see a uh, change in Adam's behavior and his language after they've eaten the fruit, after they're hiding from God and God makes them fess up. And Adam tries to pin it all on Eve as if it was her fault that he ate the fruit. He he blames Eve. He blames God for giving him Eve. And his attitude has shifted from, oh, you're, you're flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone to, well, you're the one who got me into this mess. And you can see that that disdain and the spite, the bitterness that he has towards Eve allowing him to blame her.
0: Adam is the original incel, right? Like, he does something fucked up, and then he blames women for his fucked up activity, right? Like, he could have said no. He knew exactly what God had said, just like Eve did. He right? was there
3: the whole time, too.
0: <laughs> exactly. And and he was the one who heard the command not to do it, and he didn't listen. So, that, that's a whole other, whole other uh, little tangent, that he was the one who was supposed to be responsible for making sure this information was communicated effectively. And you know how we know that it wasn't communicated effectively? Because Eve was deceived by the serpent because Eve didn't know that she was already made in the likeness of God. Right? God had already made humanity in God's likeness. God said that at the very beginning, that was the first thing that God did, and then the serpent tells her, you will be like God, and that is what is tempting. Eve just wants what is already true of herself, right? And how often is that true in our our modern society because of patriarchy, right? How many industries would go down the drain if women just believed that they were beautiful the way that they were?
3: This is why capitalism is always in bed with the patriarchy.
0: Exactly. We would lose a ton of makeup, uh, a ton of the makeup industry. We would lose a ton out of the workout industry. We would lose a ton of the diet industrial complex. You know, all of these things that if human beings just realized that you are lovely the way that God made you, we would eradicate entire industries. It would actually be true that millennials are destroying an industry if we actually knew (laughs) that we were awesome just the way God made us. But because of the interrelated lies that we are told that cause us not to believe that thing that's true of us, we are suddenly ashamed, right? It was true that we were naked before, and when we discover it, when someone points out to us that we're naked, suddenly we're ashamed of it, rather than continuing in the beautiful bliss that we were in before.
1: I did want to, like, kind of hit on, like, the idea that, like, not only is like if you know people understood their own worth would so many industries not exist but the wording that the serpent uses is also the exact same wording that those industries use like you can be thin is what diet companies say right and that means that right now you are not thin um you can have white teeth and they say that Implying that currently you do not have white teeth. Your teeth are not sufficiently white. And I just think that's um, interesting. Like it's literally the oldest trick in the book.
2: Alter right here uh, highlights specifically Eve's reaction to the serpent here. Uh, in verse six, and his translation says, "And the woman saw that the tree was good for eating, and that it was lust to the eyes." Is how he renders ta'awa, which is the verb here. Um, oftentimes, it's rendered in other English translations like delight or good, for, good to look at, or something like that. But her reaction to the to the definitively biblically canon in English sales pitch, still not letting that go of the serpent was to to respond with a kind of lustful, capitalistic desire for for the fruit. So I absolutely want to use the Biblical Hebrew to reinforce what you were just saying. That's absolutely a thing that's happening here.
0: Well, the first trick in the book is committed by this serpent, right? And uh, this serpent is a really interesting figure because they don't ever appear again. Now let me say that again, the serpent does not appear again throughout the rest of the Bible, we have other figures who pop up as the accuser, who pop up as uh, Hasatan, who pop up as uh, the beast, they pop up as the devil, all of these different ideas that generally, in the Old Testament especially, refer to different figures. And the serpent here is, from as far as we can tell, literally just a serpent, just a snake, that shows up, and gets cursed and wriggles around on its belly for the rest of its existence, right? But that is a different person than Satan later on, right? In Job, we see uh, Satan, and uh, now let's talk about Satan for a quick second, uh, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about Job, but when God is saying constantly, let us do this thing, the humans have become like us. What is God talking about there? Well, the idea is that in ancient Uh, Israelite religion. The idea was that there was God, and then there was God's court. And one of the members of that court is the accuser, Hasatan. Now, that is basically the prosecutor. And, of course, we know all cops are bastards, right? So, that means that the prosecutor is also a bastard. But, uh, Hasatan is not actually the devil. This is someone who exists within God's court. This is not someone who's been kicked out and is reigning in hell or anything like that. Hasatan is playing a very specific role of an accuser, and we actually see in the Gospels that the Satan that Jesus encounters is not the the leader of hell in most of the discussions. Instead, it is specifically a tempter, an accuser, a prosecutor who, like what is doing, being done to Job, is tempting Jesus to no longer worship God, but instead to worship Hasatan. It's literally the same word. It is literally the same word. Now, Hasatan is not the word for serpent. They are playing a similar role. They're both tempting, they're both accusing the person, uh, but they are not the same figure. And that's something that's really worth talking about more in depth as we continue to talk about Satan. But they're all entirely different figures. And the reason that's really important is because when we think about uh, Hasatan and the serpent and the devil and the beast and the Antichrist and all of these other figures as one person, that personifies evil into a being that can come and hurt us, right? That is big and scary, but what we actually need to be talking about is the fact that sin and death are powerful things that exist in the world, right? That sin and death, according to the myth that we're reading here are introduced into the world by this action right and sin and death become these big powerful things now when i 'm talking about sin again i'm not talking about the individual things that we do wrong right i'm talking about sin as this overarching thing that exists that is the state of injustice that we live in the state of injustice that we are all born into the fact that capitalism forces us to buy chocolate that is raised by slave labor right the fact that that we are forced to buy products from companies that exploit women and exploit children right the fact that we are forced to if we want to live in a society pay taxes to a government that uses that their military to go and kill other people uh, innocent children right all of those things are part of the systems of sin and oppression that we live in that we cannot avoid as human beings right And we participate in those things, and we should be resisting those things, but to recognize that the sin exists and sin and death exist within the world is separate from how we participate in that sin, right? When we fail to love our neighbor, we participate in sin, and we participate in the sin and death that exist within the world. But that does not mean that it needs to have a claim and a power over us. Christ has already beaten sin and death, right? And so, we ultimately win over these things. We don't have to be afraid of a devil. We don't have to be afraid of the Antichrist. We don't have to be afraid of the beast, because we know that God has won. Now, our battle is against the princes and the principalities of this world that keep clinging to sin and death, that wish to perpetuate capitalism, that wish to perpetuate patriarchy, that wish to perpetuate homophobia, that seek to perpetuate racism. All of these ideologies of hatred are bound up in the evil that is sin and death. And that is different from a serpent, because a serpent is just one snake that participates in this larger cycle. We should not be afraid of any one person, because they're just one person. We should be fighting against whole systems, and the best way to fight against those systems is to help other people realize that living in that system is not what we are meant to do as human beings, and to bring about a revolution where none of us have to live in that system of sin and death anymore.
2: Are we not going to talk about the giant cherubim with the flaming whirling sword? Because there's, there's a lot to that, I, I tend to think that, and that's, you know, at least fun to look at. First off, as usual, I've got Alter's notes in front of him. Um, and he notes that the tran- this is the first appearance of really any angelic figure prominently featured. And let's have the divine chorus at the beginning. But this is like the first single real angel doing a thing. And it's, it's identified as cherubim. But the word itself is rooted in a term that means like hybrid or possibly a combination of like mount or steed. It's connected to old Canaanite myths of kind of like centaur type beast demons and things like that. So this is not like your your winged baby angel with a cute little flaming sword going. Don't come any closer. Like this is a f- terrifying monster of a thing that just happens to be working for God. Which by the way, the next time uh, Valentine's Day co- comes about, uh, just get a picture of the most monstrous thing you can and write a Valentine on it. It'll be biblically accurate, and your <laughs> you know your special someone will love you for it or break up with you. One or the other. I don't know. So this that piece that's happening here and this. You know, setting aside for a moment, which, you know, you shouldn't, the mythological connections to Canaanite myths and to other local uh, stuff, there's also the fact here that this is just dropped at the end of the story like the world's heaviest exclamation mark. Like, we talk about the transition from the garden to the nomadic life, to the, to the agricultural city life, and all the different things associated with that. But right here, we are ending the chapter on a note that is, Oh, and by the way, there is no fucking way you're going back. Like, this is the thing that has happened. It is done. It is over with. And you will be cut into pieces and lit on fire. And then the pieces will be cut and those pieces will be lit on fire in a repeating cycle until you've accidentally invented the concept of Christian hell. Like, that's not happening. Like, exclamation mark. And I think it's important for us
0: to grasp the severity of the break that's being expressed here. Well, and you know, this this relates to the fact that the, the evolution of cherubs into what we understand as the cute little baby-faced angel things with wings is very much so related to the way that the serpent and Satan and all of these other figures get to be combined because both are actually in reference to Greek mythology rather than anything coming from the Bible. The cherub that we see in the Bible, the cherubim that we see in the Bible, are mentioned 92 times, and they're not mentioned consistently. Like some of them have wings, and some of them have one face, and it's a human face, and some of them have two faces, and one of them is a human face, and one is a uh, a lion face, or an eagle face, or a bull face, and then some of them have four faces. And so, there are all of these differences that are occurring, um, particularly in the book of Ezekiel. Now, cherubim are clearly standing in for other things in these stories. But the way that cherubim end up coming into the Greek context is that they are associated with these tiny little uh, demigods that fly around and deliver messages and shoot arrows of love and whatnot um, to people. And in the same way, the demons of the Old Testament, I put demons in quotes Are literally daemons, the spirits in Greek cultures, the spirits that live in everything, right? The, The Greeks had a very large concept of the soul, and souls existed to various degrees and lots of different things. Well, when that encountered a Jewish understanding, those demons were seen as lesser gods and must be false gods because they aren't the real God, right? And so they were in conflict, and suddenly, those demons those daemons must be evil demons as they become in our context. And so the, the whole concept of demons is something that arises almost entirely independently of the Bible and is fan fiction of the Bible. Now, we should also remember a lot of the Bible is fan fiction, right? <laughs> a lot of the Bible is building on itself, writing new storylines, seeing the ways that things connect. Uh, to build and tell a different story. It's all allusions to other parts of itself. And that's why we're starting here in the Old Testament, because we can only see the way that Mary shows up in the New Testament as the bringer of justice, the bringer of literally the one who will bring about justice for all people if we read this story first.
1: I wanted to touch on real quickly the idea of especially when we're talking about the curse section uh, the idea of the serpent um, instead of necessarily representing anything we would consider negative at all um, becomes a representative for all of nature um and so we see that there's this animosity between um, the woman but really like the humans and nature and because of that because there's this animosity, um they have to do like the toiling and like you know i don't like bugs and so i have to live in a house <laughs> so i have to make money and like like y- you can see this progression and obviously like um it it is rather evolutionary in that sense um which I have already railed against. um, But I also think it's worth noting, um, and this is very disjointed, but a lot of societies do have a, like, hey, we used to be hunter-gatherers, and that fucking rocked. Why aren't we doing that anymore? (laughs) Like, it it is not unique uh, amongst, like, this story. Like, if you study mythology, like, it happens a lot. Absolutely. And, and that sort of
0: nostalgia for the past is, you know, a part of reactionary movements, right? It's nostalgia for a past that was really hard, right? Hunter gatherers Yes, people were able to live hunter gatherer societies, but they also weren't able to have nearly as many humans, right? Um, a lot less people were able to live and succeed in those types of environments because it's a lot harder to grow enough food to not only feed yourself, but also feed um, pregnant women, right? And to be able to sustain a full term pregnancy and all of those sorts of things. Um, and so, you know, it is interesting that we have this sort of longing back for a hunter gatherer society, but I'm not willing to give up toilets, right? Like, <laughs> I'm not willing to give up, uh, you know, so some basic creature comforts and also the well-being of most of humanity to go back to a hunter-gatherer society because we shouldn't be fictionalizing the past, right? This story is a myth that tells us about our past, that tells us about what we should be building for the future. And, I think one of the beautiful things about this is that we see time and time again that there are constant moments of salvation, no matter what happens throughout history. We see that this this fall happens, we leave a hunter-gatherer society, we go, and Noah is able to release us from this terrible oppression and makes agricultural society something livable again, right? Livable enough that suddenly we can have nomadic tribes who bring their cattle with them as they go and travel to other places, right? And they don't have to be locked to one particular place we see when Israel is kicked out of the uh, kicked out of the kingdom and taken and oppressed by other people that there is a moment of salvation where they're able to return and they're able to build something new out of the land that wasn't there before, right? All of these transitions are things where we're able to change into what we're going into and build a better future. We're able to build a future that looks like what was good in the past, equality, love, abundance, where there is more than enough for everyone who needs it. But that doesn't mean replicating the systems of the past. It means learning from the past to build something better in the future. And that's why, again, I don't like getting to arguments about leftist history. Uh, (laughs) Because if you're trying to prove that your ideology is true because something worked in the past, update it. (laughs) Because we have to, scientific socialism is about learning from the past to be able to build a better future. And I think that relates to this story um, between the woman and the snake. This animosity between the woman and the snake is something that is taken in the New Testament, uh, specifically in the Book of Revelation. We see here, Eve and the serpent have this rivalry, this problem with each other that, uh, that comes to exist and is supposed to exist perpetually. Now, we see lots of interesting things with snakes throughout the Bible, and we're going to have on my friend Jeff to talk about snakes in the Old Testament. But this story in Revelation has a a new rivalry between Mary, uh, or the woman, the God-bearer, and the dragon, the snake. And this new rivalry is one where ultimately Mary crushes the head of the snake and the dragon and is able to win ultimately because the Christ that is in her is able to defeat the powers of sin and death in this world. And so, we have this beautiful image of the uh, libertarian snake, the uh, come and take it uh, (laughs) image, ultimately being smashed by the heel of Mary, the woman who praises God that the mighty will fall and the poor will be lifted up. Thank you to my amazing guests for being a part of this show. I have so appreciated having y'all and love these conversations. I am so excited for the next one. And thank you, dear listener for listening to us and for participating in our conversations the last couple of weeks. It has been amazing to see the way that the audio of this podcast has just boomed and developed because of your generous donations and because of our amazing editor ephemeral. So thank you all so much for being a part of this community and for joining us in making a, a community where we can talk openly about Christianity and about leftist politics and the way that we can build our relationships together. If you're interested in discussing this episode, religion, or general leftism, please join our Discord channel found in the show notes. We host a Bible study every Friday at 12-ish p.m. Eastern Time to discuss this week's episode. If you're interested in supporting this show, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash the word in black and red. Your support helps me pay our amazing editor and relieves my guilty conscience of exploiting someone's free labor. If you would like to appear on the show or reach us for any reason, you can reach us at the word in black and red at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. And now, dear listener, go into the world to stamp on the head of the serpent to bring about the world as it should be. Shalom.